You are now listening to the Claim It podcast with me, your host, Trisha Huffman, your joyologist. On this podcast, I have conversations with people who intrigue and inspire me. We get into the journeys of their lives, the ups, the downs, how they got to where they are, and how they get through the day to day. Because I believe that our feelings of success, of worth, of being enough, of being lovable are not out there somewhere. Once I have this job, this marriage, this home, this salary, then I will feel successful, worthy enough. Nope. If you keep putting it out there, you'll keep chasing it. It is something that we have to claim for ourselves every single day. On today's episode, I have Dan Perez. He wrote the book, As Needed for Pain. It's an addiction memoir. I just finished it. It's really good. Highly recommend it. He was the editor-in-chief of Details Magazine. It's a major magazine for 15 years. He won awards during that time. And also during a good amount of that time, he was addicted to pain medication. We get into the journey of it all. And I really love this conversation and loved his insights coming through his addiction and looking back on his life now and how he looks at his life today. So here we go. All right. Hi, Dan. Hi. <laughs> so let's start with where did so you started as a journalist? Yeah. That was like your first career out of college. It was. It Is, was. And it was more than just a career for me. It was like it was like an, a true ambition and passion from from a pretty early age. Yeah, was journalism always a dream of yours? Did you go to college to be a journalist? Did you knew you wanted to write? Did you know what kind of writing you wanted to do? What motivated? I, I always that? wanted to be a journalist. Um, it it was a passion for me from from a pretty young age. I listen, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a professional magician. I was super, super into magic. I was a big time magic nerd. Um, but but right alongside of that was journalism and writing and storytelling. And then frankly, by the time I got to high school and the like the jocks in high school, like the super sort of sporty guys, I went to an all-boys high school. And so they, you know, were like kind of on one side and then there was like everybody else that wasn't playing lacrosse or, or football on, on the other side. And, and I gravitated to the school paper and, and became the editor of the school paper and, and just was contributing in that way. And that just sort of like felt like a, a good lane for me. Yeah, that's cool. I don't even think... I went to an all-girls high school, Catholic high school. I don't think we even had a school paper and like had journalism. But I also maybe just didn't pay attention because I was like, let me only be in school as little as possible. Yeah. <laughs> and I, participate as little as possible. <laughs> I get that. I get that. No, but we had one. We took it seriously. And and um it was it was very cool. And it was it was like the team, it was like the only team other than like Little League yeah. Baseball as a little kid. It was like the team that I made and the team that I was on. And, and um, I feel like that, that had to, did you get some sort of like validation from like, cause that's also like a cool, like you're not scoring goals, but you are creating something that is then gloating around the school. Like, did you, would that help you? Like, did that give you any sort of pride or like? It definitely gave me validation, which I, 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 I have, 
was always seeking, right? And so, so finding it there was was turned out to be a pretty gratifying experience for me. But I, I had, you know, was one of these people that was always sort of striving for a sense of belonging. And um, I feel like, aren't we all? Well, I, I think we all are, but but some, some people, people hide it. it. Yeah, right. some <laughs> people show it show it differently. Um, uh, but yes, I think at our core, we all are, but, um, not everybody wants to own that. And, um, and certainly back then I didn't want to own it, but I, I know that I was seeking that validation and, and being, being a journalist, even a student journalist, you know, uh, gave that to me and, and, and it gave me the opportunity to talk to people and interact with people and, uh, you know, without having to sort of feel weird. Magic, interestingly, you know, not to delve too deep into my, like, magic nerdiness, but, like, doing magic tricks for someone was the same kind of feeling because I was there and they were looking at me, but they weren't really looking at me, which is, like, kind of great, right? Like, they could see me but weren't really seeing me. And But it gave me an opportunity to interact with people. And with journalism, it's, it was kind of the same thing. Like, you're there and you're engaging and you're having conversations, but you know, they're about something other than you. And, uh, and so that was, had become my comfort zone. Got it. So like, does that mean you were like a little maybe socially awkward or you just like, I don't, I wouldn't you don't say think I you were, but it just awkward. helped you having the magic or being like, okay, I'm interviewing or I'm doing this. I'm a journalist and not like we're in a conversation. Exactly. Like it was it more felt that. It was more like that. this is okay or something like, yeah. oh, this is okay for me to be talking to you or. You know, because it wasn't about me and, and cause I was so deeply insecure um, that, that I, you know, to have conversations with people, which which I was always really quite comfortable doing. You know, I really enjoy chatting with people and always have, but, but I don't love, and this is the great irony of the fact that I'm here talking to you right now. I, I've never really loved talking about myself. Uh, I've always preferred to be on the other end of the conversation and asking questions and, and kind of delving into somebody else. And journalism allowed, allowed me to do that. Got it. And yeah, I can see how both journalism and the magic could help, like, yeah, could create this different sort of confidence even in yourself and how you move through life. So, okay. So high school, running the paper, go to college. You're like, I'm going to be a journalist. And did you have a dream? Like you ended up being editor-in-chief at a major magazine. Was that a dream of yours? Did you have an idea of, was there a different type of journalism that you were hoping to do? Or you Yes, definitely a different type of journalism. I, 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 I had always wanted to be like a uh, kind of hard charging, drop me into a war zone oh, wow. um, type of journalist. Um, because the, the, the journalists that I grew up kind of uh, idolizing were journalists like that, like David Halberstam, who was this like old school journalist who had, had kind of cut his teeth, you know, covering the Vietnam War. And so I would look at these the, you know, people like him and say, oh, okay, this is the path, right? Like, 
I need to go like overseas. And then, you know, the sort of like, you know, the journalistic, you know, daydream of like a Woodward and Bernstein, you know, nose to the grindstone, like piecing, piecing a story together and taking down the presidency or whatever it was. Like <laughs> I, I had a very vivid imagination and, and I had always, um, I have, I still, I think, have, have always um, been great at daydreaming and fantasizing and sort of projecting, you know, uh, where I would, where I would want to be. And so that's where I wanted to be. But the reality was that I, you know, my path took me more toward, you know, consumer magazines and lifestyle and fashion, weirdly enough, and, and things like that. And so um, in college, too, when you're like building yourself as a journalist, are you working? Did you do stuff for your college paper, too? Did you stay in journalism while you were in college? Or what was your experience? I did. I did. And also, I went to college in New York City. I went to NYU. Oh, okay. Right. So one of the great things about going to NYU uh, was that it was in New York City. And so I was able to get internships at big media companies. I was a uh, copy boy at the New York Times. I uh, had a, got a, had a job when I was still in college at Esquire magazine as a fact checker. Oh and wow! So it allowed me to do that stuff. But but by the time I got to college, you know, I started to like my friend circle started to grow. You know, I, I wasn't just this sort of like nerdy magic kid. You know, who wanted to be a journalist. I also then like started to to develop more social relationships which of course i had throughout my adolescence and in high school but they they were not uh, at least to me they never felt like very meaningful i always felt like i was just sort of pretending to be one of the guys you know and, and i feel like that's yeah i feel like high school is like it's sort of like you're trying to figure out like what are we supposed to be doing? Should be. It's not like a lot of figuring out how you are. It's like, so which model am I going to take? Do I go that route or that route? Like that it is like yeah. a lot of pretending. What music are we supposed to like? How are we supposed to dress? And then a lot of that carries on for the rest of our lives. Yes. And that was precisely <laughs> the case with me. And, and the path that I took in high school was that I was the, I was, well, first of all, I was the younger brother of like the town star. You know? Oh, so like my my uh, my older brother Jeff was the captain of the lacrosse team. He was um, at the top of his class academically. Uh, he had um, girlfriends, uh, you know, um, and I never really had any of those things. I wasn't the job. Uh, I wasn't a great student. Uh, Lord knows I didn't have the girlfriends. <laughs> and so I was, I was like the sidekick, you know, I was the guy that, that hung out with the guy. And so, um, and that I think really defined my adolescence in, in so many ways. And then like you sort of drag that baggage into adulthood, right? Um, yeah. I certainly did. You know, um, but by the time I got to college, I tried to do a reset like so many people do when they go off to college, you know, like, oh, I get to decide who I am now. Like, who totally. is 
Totally. Did, wait, yeah. Was that when you also, yeah, because right, were you going by, were you like Danny before? Is that when yeah, you like, I am Dan. Exactly. So, so it's like, it seems like a lot of people do that. Like, now I will, like, I am right. this, like, changing their name up to an edit of their so, name. So uh, my entire life up until that point, you know, I had been Danny. And, um, and then. Which sounds like the perfect, to, like, younger brother. Totally. Oh, all right. Oh, Danny, it's come like, on. <laughs> Oh, there goes Danny the Virgin, and and that's and that's really what it was, and um and so I I made the decision uh, that going from Danny to Dan uh, was gonna like redirect everything and start me on a new course, which which of course it did not, but I yeah I, at that point went from Danny to Dan with the hope that that would like change my fate. You know, were you like, yeah. So then at that time when making the choice to go from Danny Dan, like, what did your idea look like? What did you, were you thinking? Like, I'm going to escape from this or I'm going to create myself as this. Like, do you like remember like, or the feeling of like, this will make me be more confident or more this, or people are going to, I'm going to come off as this now or. Yeah. You know, I, 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 I thought that I could like use the sort of like blueprint of my brother and and um, get to college and try to sort of, you know, go from Danny to Dan and turn into this guy that whom I sort of, you know, worshipped, my brother, and, and kind of model myself after him um, and um, try to be more social and maybe get involved with fraternity like he was doing at his college. And, do do things and behave in a way that really just wasn't me. I, I didn't know it at the time, but right. I mean, listen, being honest, I had no idea who I was like well into adult life. Right. And so in back then, you know, at 18, um, trying to kind of like chart a course for myself that, that would break me away from from what my adolescence life was like and what my high school years were like. I, I looked to my brother, but we also then looked to like the fictional characters that that we saw. You know, so for me that was like Ferris Bueller and you know uh, others. It was like okay, like I can be the kind of cool, irreverent, popular guy because no one here at the school knows Danny. Yeah. And so I, I went from Danny to Dan thinking that that was going to like be the game changer. It was. Yeah. I haven't like done something exactly like that, but I've, I've moved around a lot. I used to be a sound engineer. Um, I toured with bands a lot as a monitor engineer for like, that was my first career and I moved around a lot and would just do whatever. And I always like loved I've realized many times in my life that sometimes I felt more comfortable going somewhere. I didn't know anybody than I did around people that knew me because then those people had no preconceived notions or who I was. They didn't know what I did or what I said or that, you know, like that life thing or that phase I went through. They didn't have, because we're often so looking at what should we do be this? And we're like trying to model ourselves after other people starting in house school and throughout the life, whether media, society, our friends we want to be. But then also the people that know us are making up these preconceived notions of who we think they think we are. And so it sometimes can feel like freeing to be like, let me go here and do I get just be, be the version of myself I want to be and not who everybody else expects Trisha to be. 
story of my life. Right? <laughs> um, but it's, it's really hard to do that when you don't know how to be you. And, yeah. and so I didn't know how to be me. And so I think I picked a career, journalism, that I could just kind of hide behind and, and, and escape into because, like I said, it, it just allows you to kind of engage in the world without truly engaging in the world, right? Like I could be a part of conversations. I could, could tap into what was going on culturally, but I didn't have to be doing those things. I was just talking about doing those things. And so when you're a journalist, you can go, you can interview the star athlete and connect with the star athlete and feel good. Like, oh, cool. Here I am having a conversation with the star athlete. But I, you know, so that stuff validated me in, in really kind of meaningful ways because I didn't have a whole lot of validation like coming from myself, you know, and so I would seek it anywhere I could find it. And I honestly think that I fell into the career that I ultimately had um, by just sort of like stumbling down that path and, and realizing like, oh, okay, I can kind of hide behind the, you know, a notebook and a pencil or a tape recorder and, and engage with all of these really interesting, amazing people without being an interesting and amazing person myself. Is that what you feel like then, like your path sort of took instead of being like, okay, I need to model myself after these people. Then it sort of just became like, oh, I get to just be this like sort of like bystander and do this. Like, did you know? Yeah. I mean, I think just being in the room, right? Whatever that room was, you know? Um, so I, as a journalist, you know, my career kind of very quickly um, put me on a path of, um, like covering events and celebrities and, you know, notable cultural figures, all of which was really cool and exciting. Um, and it, it really um, kind of boosted my self-confidence because it was like, oh, wait a minute, here I am and I'm chatting with these people and, and they're eager to chat with me. And of course, they were eager to chat with me because I was going to write about them. But I, you know, had these moments where I was like, oh, wait a minute, I'm hanging out with so-and-so and that that makes me cool. And then I could go to my circle of friends and say, hey, you know, I met Al Pacino at a movie premiere last night or, or you know, whomever it was. And, and, and that, that kind of gave me, uh, I felt at the time, like a cultural status uh, maybe not of the same level of Al Pacino, obviously, but like within my kind of like constellation of friends and people, that was my currency, right? Yeah. And that was what kind of made me different. And, and I had hoped at the time important. Again, I was striving so much to just fit in and to be accepted and, and to feel like, I belonged, you know, like yearning for this like sense of, but like having this need for the, a sense of belonging, I think really defined the first 35 years of my life. And, and this career uh, gave me at least the veneer of that. 
You know, it's interesting because again, I think like so many of us are striving for a sense of belonging, even once we become self-aware, you just become more aware of like, oh, this is me (laughs) feeling like I don't belong or looking for validation. Like, but it's like it never really stops. You just become like aware of what you're doing or what you're feeling. But like wondering now you're seeing that you probably didn't know it at the time, but like stopping and thinking of like, what would that even feel like to belong? You know, like you were striving so hard. Like, do you did you have an idea of like once I have this or like, okay, I'm on the path because this person said that was cool. or I got invited to that because it's also if you're getting like the boost and the high from that and like, okay, my friends now think this about me because of this, like it's that's what's funny. It's like we're often so chasing a feeling or what we want, but what would that even look like once you get there? Let's just say like often somebody's like, oh, once I have this job, once I make this much money, then I'm going to yeah. feel secure. I safe mean, it's, it's seldom as rewarding as you want it to be. And um, it, it rarely um, sort of gives you what, what we really need. Right. And, 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 uh, but I, you talked about self-awareness a middle, a minute ago. I, I lacked all all self-awareness. I mean, I literally had none. And so I was, I was playing the role, you know, uh, at the beginning of my career of like, all right, I'm a guy in his twenties living in New York city and this is what I should be doing. And I should be smoking and drinking and, and smoking pot. And I should be, you know, I have this cool job and I have access to all these sort of really interesting cultural figures and that's kind of my currency. So I should be talking about that. And, and of course, also at that phase of life, at least for me, you know, dating and, 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 you know, um, am I attracting women? Because that's like a, a real sort of, at least at the time in my mind was like, Oh, that's going to validate me, you know, and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to meet people and I'm going to have sex and I'm going to be doing all these things because that's, that's the piece of me that's been missing. So I've been, you know, I was like, I think many people, you know, chasing one thing after the next. It's like you said, okay, once I get this job and once I get this apartment and once I get this girlfriend or boyfriend, or once I do this, uh, you know, everything's going to fall into place. Like these are the ingredients and, and once I get them all together in the mixing bowl, I'm going to have everything I need. And what I, you know, now know, of course, is that, you know, none of that shit matters. Uh, but at the time, I was like, okay, I need to get all these pieces to kind of like get this puzzle together. And then I'll, I'll see the full picture of who I am. And, and it, I developed such a massive preoccupation with doing that and striving for, for an identity that the last place I thought I was going to like find my identity was from within. So I was, I was just like looking outwardly, you know, at every turn to try to piece together who I was. And I'll tell you, even talking about it right now, it's just like, what an exhausting thing that, they have to do, you know, I mean, it's just brutal. Yeah, I'm like, despise the word should and I'm actually writing a book right now about the life changing effects of eliminating the word should from your life. Because and I love all of what you just said. And I normally like don't like, that's what we do. And that by we're always living into the shoulds, what should I do? What should I do this looking at to the outside world that like, 
we're outsourcing all of our life choices and modeling our lives not over what we want and what feels good to us, but what like should I be doing? Everything. And I realized I gave the word up over 10 years ago and I wouldn't let myself say it. And I needed to, and I had no, I was mind blown how often I use the word. And I really wouldn't want to let it come out of my mouth. So I switched it to want. So every time I said should, I had to switch to want and everything then became my choice. And it's like insane because then I was asking myself, what do I want all day long? What should I be doing? What should I eat for dinner? What should I say to this email? What should I, what do I want? Even right now, like this Corona, what should I do? My kid's school didn't shut down yet. But what so I and I do want to work, but also what feels best to me right now or what should what should like that were it constantly comes up. And even though I gave the word up over 10 years ago, the feeling of it comes up every single fucking day. But because I'm aware of like the shoulds and I'm like, <gasps> I can feel it in my body like, oh, this is a should. OK, so what's happening, Trisha? What do you actually want? What feels best to you? Why are you doing that? I always get to check in with my motivation and my why's. And it's like it's freaking life changing, which is why I'm writing the book about it. But it's like we live in the should so much and we don't realize it. But yeah, you live your entire life based on shoulds of other people and what what I should be doing. We, you're absolutely right. And and, um, and I think that's like an amazing idea for a book. And I have experienced that concept a, a little bit, you know, being careful using the word should. Um, and so I think it's a brilliant idea um, because I think it, we get to the root of decision-making, right? We get to the root of making choices. Um, and, and, uh, and I think that that's incredibly important. And I think, you know, I, in my experience, you know, so much of the decision-making that, that has happened in my life has been, uh, or had been anyway, rooted in other people's perceptions of me, not my own perception of myself. And, and it's impossible to, to outwardly project an idea of who you are without inwardly knowing who you are. And that's what I did for, for so long, you know, and it goes back to the sort of need for validation and seeking and things like that. So, but what you just sort of said is, is really impactful because, you know, we have choices, right? And, and to understand what's at the root, what's motivating my decision-making, I think is, is incredibly important. And it's a really hard thing to do you know, um, and, and I'm 48 years old and it's still a hard thing to do. It's like, wait, why am I, why am I doing this? What's, what's motivating me to do this? Is this like a healthy choice for me? Right. And, and this right um, now, cause it also is different in different stages of your life and different days and whatever. Totally. Totally. So I get that. I will also say that like, uh, in many ways, I'm uh, really grateful that um, social media didn't exist when I was uh, an adolescent or, or even a young adult um, because, you know, I, I already had so many external um, uh, influences and so many external examples of what I thought I should, should be like, um, the, the, the flood of examples that would like literally just come yeah. like pouring in on social media would have absolutely just driven me to a state of yeah. insanity. 
Yeah, because it's even if you're like trying to better, even if you're like, oh, I'm self-aware and I'm in the person who else. It's like you saw Paul, all these people that are preaching self-care or this. And it's still like, I should be doing this. I should that we're still like outsourcing this and that like by taking it always in. It's like you have to figure out what's best in you. And it's like tying me into my intuition constantly. This is a great thing for them. They love this. This changes their life. Like even if it's a positive thing, not everything is for us. <laughs> like <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. So um, and, I, and I as a dad you know, look at, um, my kids and think, Oh God, okay. What are they, what's, what's this journey going to be like for them with this sort of the option anyway of like 24 seven, you know, external stimulation. And, and I find myself, you know, I'm in recovery. And so I find myself using and with my children and I try to stop myself from doing it, but using the sort of some of the slogans that I've picked up over the years in recovery with my kids, and they're really important because I, you know, but I, I try to just sort of change it up a little bit so it's not like I'm like, hey, compare and despair. But that is that is one that I think is really important, right? You know, and I spent I think you know a lifetime or big portion of my lifetime looking at other people and wanting what they had. And then from that comes self-pity and all of these things which are really unhealthy and which encourage shitty decision-making, right? And maybe it's I should, right, if, if you'll allow me, right, to use that word, maybe I should be doing this because so-and-so is doing this. Not, I want to be doing X, Y, and Z, but, oh, I probably should be here, there, or anywhere else because that's what person A, B, and C are doing. And looking at them, at least from my vantage point, they have uh, the things that I should have. You know, not the things I need, not the things I want to have, but the things I should have, you know. So that's that's why... Um, I'll definitely read your book for sure because um, <laughs> it's you know it's no it's a really powerful concept you know it and it's a it's a really incredibly difficult but powerful life hack. Yeah, right? as I'm saying, like I'm saying, I gave that word up over ten years ago, and I still struggle with it every day. <laughs> yeah, but I'm aware of it, so I'm always able to come back to checking in. What's motivating this? What feels right? Is this what I want, or is this because I see so and so doing it, or because people expect it of me? Because I can do it. Right. Like, so all that is does <laughs> is slows down our process. Right. And, and, and I talk to my kids about this all the time too, which is, okay, let's just, let's just take a second and, and look at what's really motivating this behavior. And I do it for myself too, right? It's like, wait a minute, why, why did I just do that? Or why did I, wait a minute, did I just lie to someone? Like what's motivating that lie, you know? Right. And, and so by, by, putting that little roadblock up that you've done, right, with should, uh, and that probably many more of us should do, it really just slows us down. And it's, I'm not talking by days, but like even by minutes. No, totally. You know, or seconds, like, oh, wait a minute, like, well, let me just take a quick look at what's like really going on here. And, and yeah. That's a powerful tool. Like you said, it's a, it's like a hack, the, like a check-in real quick, like, oh, wait a minute, nope. 
like, oh, because you can always feel it. It's a feeling in the body. There's this heaviness, this feeling of like tornness of like, you know, you're not like really doing it. And it's not. Yeah, it's not easy, (laughs) but it's very powerful. And then I'm always I'm never feeling resentful or, you know, like or envy. It's like always coming back to myself and feel great about what I'm doing in the world and showing up for it, even when it's making hard choices. Okay, back to you. Sorry. Sorry. (laughs) No, I'm not sorry, because I'm like, well, we're talking about my favorite thing. And this is like this is like this is my M.O. It's like turn the conversation away from you as often as you possibly can. You know, so. um, You hit me in my sweet spot talking about shoulds. So tell me more about yourself. (laughs) Tell me more about your book, Trisha. All right. So let's get, so yeah, you talked about your starting in journalism in New York city, your writing, you started to work for a magazine fairly quickly. I did. Yeah, I and that's when you're going to the parties. and I started to go to, to events and parties. And I, I was working, you know, interestingly enough for, at the time, W Magazine, which was like this, like, you know, you know, big, beautiful, like women's fashion magazine. Yeah, but it was like, yeah, for me, I remember W feeling like that's like the cool, like elite sort of. Yeah, like, totally. It's like not cool, cool, like elite, but hip. Like Yeah, it was very like luxe. You yeah. know, um, it, it wasn't like down and dirty cool by any stretch. And um, and so with that, I started to have access to like fashion designers and all of these really interesting people. And, and I, you know, I embraced that because it, um, A, it was, you know, uh, exciting. B, like I said before, was validating. And C, because I truly... And like genuinely enjoyed that work. I, I really did. I love the idea of storytelling. It's always something that uh, appealed, you know, to me. And and I so I just kind of dove into it. So even you're working for a fashion magazine, it's not like you were writing about the top 10 pieces to have this season or whatever. I don't, no, even, it, I don't read fashion magazines, but no, I'm like guessing back in my head. But yeah, you're doing headline. stories. Yeah. But you're doing stories on like the designers or like actual, like personal stories. Right. I was that- writing about people. Uh, I wasn't, I'm not a fashion kind of guy. The people that were creating these amazing things, whether yes. it was a collection or whatever. So yeah, very yes. intriguing, successful people. Yeah, I was spending time with those people and uh, and it was really cool, you know, but I was still seeking, you know, and not seeking in the healthy way, right? Like, I mean, I think it's one thing to be like seeking, I'm on a journey of sort of like, um, you know, seeking to better yourself, totally, and better the like world the, or something, yeah. seeking mindfulness. No, it wasn't, it wasn't that. Like I, I just had no fucking clue, like how to be a guy, how to be a human. You know, I was just, I was pretending to be a journalist. I was pretending, not even, I was pretending to be a guy who had a job as a journalist. And, and so, um, it's and that's like a really kind of lonely place to be, you know. Like I really just would come home at the end of the day and like plop down on the sofa and become like a couch potato and like smoke cigarettes and eat like shitty food and wait until the next day's performance began when I left the house. Like that's how I viewed it. Like I was 
I was like waiting in the wings of some theatrical performance that was going on. And, and I wasn't really doing anything until I stepped back out on that stage every day. Like I am playing the part of Dan. Wait, how do you even pronounce your last name? Paris. Yeah. Dan Dan Paris. like magazine journalist, high fashion magazine journalist. <laughs> totally. And that's, that's what I did. And then I like the performance would end every night and I would sort of sit and wait for it to start again, you know, because I wasn't building a life for myself. I wasn't building an identity for myself. I, you know, was pretending, you know, and I, and had been really my whole life. And since I I make up that being put in the position of now in these rooms with these important, successful, intriguing people, then to interview them would bring up self-doubt and anxiety. Were you already so good at journalism that, that you didn't have that sort of stuff? Or did you were you also fighting yourself through that those things? Well, I mean, I, I think it's very easy for me to talk about all of this now, right? Yeah. Sort of look, look back. Not be aware it. back then. Right. Um, I think in the moment I had zero self-awareness. And so I, I can say now, you know, with with relative kind of comfort and and um, the understanding that time, you know, and, and the development of self-awareness brings to looking back on, on, on the life, our lives up until this point. Uh, so I do, I can do it with relative ease now, but in the moment, I don't think I had any awareness of, of what I was doing. I, I was doing what I assumed everyone else was doing, which was, living the life. And, and when I was out at bars, I would do my best to like, this is going to make even me cringe, but I would do my best to be cool. And um, I would do my best to like fit in. And, and so I don't, I don't think it, it wasn't until many years later where I was like, Oh, wait a minute. Like I was pretending every step of the way and and was really quite like alone and feeling like pretty you know incomplete you know and and um there's no question about it right so you're feeling pretty alone in that you had good friends at the time right and stuff but so you're still even pretending with them you're not saying like oh i feel like i'm playing the part of this or that like you weren't opening up to anybody about what was really happening you were just anytime you were with anybody else, you're playing the part hundred percent of Dan and Perez. And then you get home and you're like, you can't even. Right. And, and, and I would, you know, so with just with regard to friends, I think that I would, um, did I have friends? Yes. Um, but, but was I building friendships? No. And, and, and I think the distinction there is pretty important, right? Like, I could go out and hang out and drink a beer or smoke a joint or, or, you know, eat food or do whatever, like, you know, this kind of peer group was doing. But, but other than like one or two people that I did like have friendships with, I was not really developing friendships. And even those core key friendships were I was limiting because I I didn't want anyone to see the real me because I wasn't even looking at the real me, you know? Right. And so I wasn't going to say, hey, you know, I'm 
God, I'm feeling really insecure or, or I have a lot of fear. I feel like I'm playing the part of someone because totally, you didn't you know? know. You're just doing what you think you should be doing. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, and so, um, and that's, that's what I did. You know, that's how I kind of went about my day. And you pretty, was it pretty early into like your journalism career that you hurt your back and ended up getting a prescription? It is. Painkillers? It is. It was, I was in my um, kind of middle 20s, uh, probably 24 or 25. uh, And I I injured my back. um, Which let's not tell the story because it's pretty amazing. Sorry. Hilarious. (laughs) In his book. (laughs) Yeah, so I, I write about Go it. Go get the book and the read in the book. But I, I what what I will say about it is that I did something. I'm like, I'm sorry for calling it hilarious, but I'm sure you're looking back like it, that. Oh that yeah, was I mean, it's what... just ridiculous. It's just absolutely like ridiculous. And um, of of all the things that I write about in the book, uh, and I write about a lot of really kind of like personal stuff um, that that I'm not like deeply proud of. Yeah, this moment in my life where I hurt my back, uh, which ultimately became like a life defining moment for me, yeah, um, was was rooted in all of the same things that I'm talking about right now, which is sort of seeking validation, trying to get attention, you know. So I did something to try to bring attention to myself um, because I, you know, at my core didn't think that I was worthy of any attention on my own, you know, that I didn't merit it on my own. So, so I did something. You can say it if you want to. Yeah. I mean, I, I did, <laughs> I mean, it's really stupid, but um, I did a cartwheel to, to try to get the attention of a woman. Uh, I mean, it's just like, sounds like made up almost, you know, but like I did and, and ended up hurting my back. And, and with that back injury, um, and ultimately with that cartwheel, really, the, the trajectory of my life forever changed. And um, I was introduced to prescription painkillers um, as a result of this back injury. Bringing you a brief interruption because I'm so excited to tell you about Better Help, H E L P. They are sponsoring this episode, and I think it is such an amazing opportunity platform. Better Help will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist from the comfort of your home from your phone. It feels so good to be able to open up and talk to people, whether it's something you want to work on as a goal, challenges you're having wounds, things from your past, therapy, counseling from professionals. And you can get help within 24 hours, either from messaging, from a phone call, from a video call. It's really amazing. I've actually tried it myself. You enter in a like questionnaire of what's showing up in your life, what you want to work on. You can choose from different counselors and what their specialties are, look at their calendars and availability. You can chat with them in a secure messaging space between sessions. It's really making it so accessible and it's also affordable to have this support and the safe space to open up and to work through what's coming up for you. Go to 
BetterHelp, that's H-E-L-P dot com slash claim it and check it out. You will save 10% with your first month if you sign up through my link. That is betterhelp.com slash claim it. It'll be in the show notes. Check it out. Again, you can go. There's plenty of testimonials on their website. I myself have been using it. It makes it, again, easy, accessible, and we all owe it to ourselves. This is a really challenging time, I think, for all of us. So check it out. Open yourself up. Get out of your own way. You can do it from the comfort of your home when we're not leaving our house right now, especially if you're listening to this the same week it's being recorded. So you can start communicating with someone in under 24 hours. Check it out. Betterhelp.com slash claim it. And that was when, so yeah, you hurt your back. You did end up having to get surgeries. It was a real thing. It they was gave real. you, yeah, it was real painkillers. So, the, yeah, so the doctor is in the right. You really messed up your back. You have absolutely, to get yeah. I was gives you painkillers, right? I was, in and pain. then I, I, this medication should have been prescribed to me, but you know, when I talk about seeking and wanting to feel a sense of belonging and, um, you know, uh, never really feeling uh, comfortable with myself and all these things that we've been talking about over these last uh, minutes, I can say, you know, uh, with like utter certainty that like in that moment in my life, taking painkillers for the first time gave me all of those things. It was a feeling of being home for the first time. It was a feeling of uh, being complete for the first time. And it was this sort of, uh, this embrace that I had been longing for my whole life. I found or believed I had found anyway with these pills. And it was the, the, I mean, I'm listening. I certainly hardly want to glamorize this, but in the in the moment, uh, it was the the embrace that I felt like I needed and had been seeking my whole life. Wow! And yeah, so, yeah it's probably just like I've. I don't even think I've ever been prescribed painkillers for pain, but um, I'm guessing <laughs> that that feel. I'm guessing like that feeling is just like, sort of like yeah, it's like we're swimming so often in these doubts and fears and shoulds and stuff, and so then like the pill is like all of a sudden like oh like put, gives it space so that yeah like oh maybe you're not fighting all of those internal pressures we have. Yeah, I mean it took everything away, and it was like oh wait a minute, this is how I should be feeling, and that's that's what it was. You know, I had spent 24 years up until that point, you know, trying to find my way. And um, all of a sudden, I took these pills and was like, oh, here I am. And it was pretty, it happened pretty quickly. Uh, and it was the beginning of just a, a massive addiction to, um, to opiate prescription painkillers that, you know, uh, at least initially made me feel great but then kind of took me on this, you know, um, really intense journey that was anything but great. And, and I, you know, certainly can't romanticize that, but in those early days 
of discovering these pills, which again were prescribed, uh, you know, for legitimate reasons, I found myself, I thought, really for the first time. And I'm guessing in those first months, then like it's also probably pretty easy to get the prescriptions refilled because again, you had surgery and stuff, or did it start the struggle with getting the pills start fairly easy early too? No. And, and this was also, um, you know, in the late nineties, right? So this was, uh, before we had a national crisis, this was, um, before there's no awareness about people abusing opiates at that point no it it was just not an issue and um doctors were really just starting to prescribe them more broadly at this time and so uh and by the time my drug addiction really blossomed in 2000 i was uh was able to get them pretty readily you know um i had also just taken a job as the editor-in-chief of Details Magazine, which was this like big national magazine that I was like so underqualified to, to get this job. So like my insecurity about where I was professionally while I had this amazing job, my insecurity and fear and anxiety you know, just ramped up to to a level that, that it had never been at before. And so the drug use was like this, I, you know, was, I was trying to kind of keep the pacing of the drug use in step with the pacing of the fear and the anxiety and the insecurity and, and both developed very, very quickly. Yeah. I, yeah. I'm, I can't imagine that. Yeah. When you, being named editor-in-chief because you were fairly young. I was in my and, 20s. Still. Yeah, that's yeah. like so major. And at that time, so you also, back injury happens, you start to go take the pills, but then also you went to live in France that's for right. a couple years. That's right. Yeah. And so in that too, I remember in the book, you were, you were, seemed like you, were you off pills for some point or you had some there and then you went off and then that's why you're like looking because they didn't have them. That's right. Sense, right. That was so like coding. I injured my back um, and had the back surgery and, and um, kind of fell in love with painkillers before moving to Paris. Then I was asked uh, by, by the people at W Magazine if I wanted to move to Paris and run their European offices. There were offices in uh, Paris, London, and Milan. And I was like 25, and I was like, yeah. I was gonna say, that sounds like a dream. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so um, I like, fuck yeah. And, and so I moved to Paris, and you know, without really speaking French, and, and I mean, I was a kid. And you can't get these drugs in Paris. Uh, they, they actually, at the time anyway, I, I, I'd be shocked if it has changed, but, um, they don't really like have medications like this there. They have, uh, certain things that you can take certainly for pain. Uh, but all the things that I had started to take, um, they really just don't have there and they're not readily accessible. So I went to Paris with like a big stash 
of pills, which I blew through pretty quickly. And, uh, and I just kind of like dealt with life there without them and, and, uh, ended up smoking a lot of like hash actually, um, over there, probably drinking a little bit more, uh, than, than I had before I left because I was still trying to chase that feeling that, that feeling of belonging and comfort that the opiates gave me uh but but without any true access to the opiates and so i probably got there i you know my body went through withdrawal and i sort of like detoxed from them just by necessity like i had no choice and and the the addiction to the painkillers was really just in its infancy at at that point so i was able to kind of get through it pretty pretty easily and kind of get into my life in Paris and, and, and not, not struggle too much. Got it. And then what at that time though, when you, cause that's right. You decide to go to a, a hospital there. Fake. Yeah. Fake, a, fake yeah. that you're fake a back injury or something like that. So at that point when you're like at that straw, was it just like, was anything even happening at that time that was more stress or that you just were like this had this remembering of this feeling in the back of your mind the whole time or like was pre- work pressure harder or anything? It just, no, finally... I, think that I just was growing depressed. And, and I think that I had some like loneliness kick in, you know, when I was in Paris, listen, I, Paris was great, and, and I write about it in my book. You know, it was a really sort of pivotal time for me socially and uh, with respect to meeting people and my self-confidence and dating and things like yeah, that. Yeah, it sounds like there's a yeah. lot of validation in that. Yeah, you're doing cool stories, talking to cool people. Yeah, girls are having interests that, like, you're getting these things. Yeah, like, like, there, like I started to sort of mature in some ways, but, but I also didn't, you know, and so... Um, I was, which that's the thing. If you're always looking for it on the outside, there's never going to be, you're never going to find it. You're never going to be enough. You get everything you can dream of. You're always looking for it out there. You know, like, you know what? It's, I'm going to really feel great when I have, once I have the mansion, that's going to change everything. And, you know, uh, and and like none of that shit like matters. And, but of course I didn't know that. And so, um, I found myself getting depressed and really like at, at a, or what I describe as depression. It may have been just like loneliness and I, I was longing for something. So I, I went to a hospital in Paris and pretended to have back pain and um, ended up getting a, an injection of uh, morphine. And that was like, okay, wait a minute. Like, right. I've missed you. You know, it was like being reunited with a long lost love. You know, because even though you've never had morphine, that it's like an op- it still is like a similar high. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a very similar high, uh, and they're you know, they're, they uh, it was for me at the time anyway. You know, and, and they gave me this injection, and I was in the hospital. Uh, I was able to to like successfully fake back pain, by the way, because I had had legitimate back pain in the past, and I had a scar on my back, which, you know, indicated that I'd had surgery and, and I could speak, you know, with confidence about what my back pain felt like. I wasn't in pain at the time, but I had had these experiences, which enabled me to convince doctors that I was actually in pain when I wasn't. I could talk about the surgery I had. I could talk about the sort of like 
you know, disfigurement of my spine, which I had, and all of these things um, that, that allowed me to, to really quite successfully manipulate the medical community to get drugs. Yeah. And that's what, yeah, like, know, and you ended crazy. up, how, how long was that, that you ended up being addicted? I, I had like a full blown. So I, I had this shot of morphine in the hospital in Paris and I was brought back to New York to take the job running details magazine very soon after that injection. That was in 2000. So from 2000 to 2007, I was a full blown day in, day out, active opiate addict. And I, and I was taking just massive amounts of pills and getting them at least initially rather sort of successfully from doing doctor shopping. So from seeing a bunch of different doctors at the same time. Uh, but as my tolerance grew, my intake also increased. Um, and I, I became really difficult to manage because I needed more and more pills. So just to get that feeling you were looking for, your body gets used to it. So you were like, start with, oh, okay, I take two, well, then six, then it grew to like 15 yeah, at a time. That's exactly right. 15 that, at, at a time uh, that I was doing a number of times during the day. And so I was taking a like big quantity. 60 pills uh, a day. With, with extra strength Vicodin, um, uh, it, it turned into 60 a day. Which that seems like that's probably supposed to be a what one month supply or something yeah, I mean, or what for, what would that for, yeah sure yeah for for pre- prescribed use like what would it would uh, that be like for prescribed somebody- use it would probably be one to two tablets a day every four to six hours as needed for pain uh, which is where I get the, the name of my book um, and so right do the math one to two four times a day let's say it's even two that's eight a day. You know, so, um, but even that would be a lot. I think any doctor even listening to this would say that's probably a lot. Right. You know, so like, yeah, so let's say it's a couple times a day you would take them, you know, and and, um, and I was up to about 60 a day. And what's really interesting actually about that number, you know, particularly since my book came out, um, you know, uh, people have been like, no way was he taking that many pills. And I, I participated uh, last night in a um, in a virtual like recovery meeting, and I was the speaker. So I was uh, like in AA speak. I was qualifying, but like I was the speaker in this meeting, and I didn't talk about numbers at all. Um, and I just mentioned opiates. I kept it more general about sort of general addiction and alcoholism. But someone reached out to me after the meeting on social media uh, without knowing my story um, and said, I was taking 80 a day. Wow. So I think that like, you know, it, you know, unless you're in it, like the number, it's very easy to look at the numbers and be like, no, that can't be. And he's say, you know saying these numbers just to sort of make his story seem more extreme. Like I'm telling you, no. I, you know, that's just not the case. Like I didn't have to embellish my story in any way. It was pretty fucked up on its own. Um, so like, but yeah, I was taking 60 a day and, um, 
of extra-strength Vicodin. The, the number of pills ultimately came down when I started to take different drugs that just had a higher dosage of, of, of opiate in it, you know? Yeah. And so this whole time, you're also the editor-in-chief of a major magazine. And it seemed like the magazine was doing well, was successful during that run. Yeah, it really was. You got an award. It's right, like Things are happening. And so is that, how are you showing, like that's what, it gets into the book that towards the end, like, yeah, you're barely in the office. You're making all sorts of excuses about why you're not there or illnesses and things. But like, oh, you can work from home. It's like, were you at the beginning though, or maybe throughout, are you able to manage as the editor or was it a lot of, relying on your team but it was more that you know i mean i I think right if we're being like really honest and i'm 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 happy to be really honest um because people have said like oh you were a high functioning addict i was like nah i was a barely functioning addict but i had you know like an amazing you know i was surrounded by incredible people who you know really stepped up you know when when there's an addict in your life whether it's your personal life or your professional life, if you're dealing with someone that's an active addict or alcoholic, you know, it, it really raises the bar in terms of what you need to be doing to keep things going, right? So anyone that's in a relationship, married to, uh, or dealing with someone in their family who is an active addict or alcoholic, you know that you the demands that fall on you increase exponentially because this person isn't getting shit done, right? And uh, and in many ways is making life harder and more challenging and more complicated. And so that's what I was doing also. So the people around me had to work twice or three times as hard just to sort of meet whatever the goals were. And that was certainly true with the team at details. So I was able to give some broad direction and I was, listen, I wasn't like, it wasn't a total shit show, but, yeah. but increasingly over time, my absences became more and more frequent. My uh, erratic behavior became more and more frequent. My presence uh, in any sense of the word became more and more infrequent. So the magazine thrived uh, and that was due in, in large part to just really amazing people that were there working with me at the time. Do you think if you were not in that position and you were an editor that you would have lasted? Like this is a, like posi- people in positions of power getting being able to like, you probably could have still been an addict, but would you have been able to keep your job? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, and- because like, I'm, before you answer, like I'm coming at it from like I created this position, whereas like I said, I used to be a touring sound engineer. When I first created myself as this joyologist, I went back on the road with these musicians to keep them grounded in like mindful and in living like because, again, they have everything that they want, but they're still not happy. Like I got to see that as a sound engineer. They are living their biggest dreams, singing their songs that they wrote to thousands of people around the world. They have everything 
jets this and that they're still not happy and fulfilled. And if that person is in a bad mood, the whole tour is in a bad mood. Everybody's walking on eggshells. Don't talk to so-and-so. I don't know. Is this going to happen? What's going to happen during the show tonight? Everybody's walking on eggshells. When somebody in a position of power, because nobody is going to call them out on their shit. Exactly. And that's And so much, I gave myself a job to call people out on their shit. Yeah. I mean, you just you just nailed it. That I mean, it, it was <laughs> I was the boss and uh, because the magazine was doing well, my bosses were like, "Great, the magazine's doing well. We don't need to d- worry about the magazine." So but yeah, I was the boss and and, and people really could, wouldn't couldn't call me on it. I would imagine that they were talking to each other about it and um, uh, my absences and things like that. You know, maybe they even suspected drug use. I can't say, but we, you know, like the business was doing okay. And so I was left alone. Uh, But you just, what you just said is actually really true. My mood which was incredibly mercurial. It would shift and change and, and, and you know, spike and, and peak uh, and drop, like, from one moment to Because you're relying on these drugs and you run out on this or the timing or your, totally. all of a sudden your tolerance. Like, you're relying on drugs for how, your moods, basically. Right. And when you're taking as many pills as I was, it became really difficult to maintain a supply. And so... My mood would change pretty, pretty radically uh, when I didn't have them, uh, the pills, uh, versus when I did. And I would be, would go from being like aloof or even kind of zoned out to being just like a terror in the, in the period of like hours. Um, and that's the sort of, the power of this addiction is such that at least for me, where like, you know, you know, running out was just awful. It was hell on earth, you know, and, and not having enough pills was the worst feeling in the world. And, and, you know, I described recently, you know, if someone asked, what's it like to go through opiate withdrawal? And, and like, it's like everything that you've seen in movies over the years of people coming off of heroin or pills or whatever, like all that shit's accurate, you know, like it's just like awful, you know? And so when that was happening, I would just be like the worst type of human, you know, and would treat people like shit and, um, and would take everything that I was going through out on them. And it, it, it made for, to be in my orbit, was was a really shitty place to be. It really was, you know. Yeah, and that's what that's and that's what, I mean. Even it's like yeah, these positions of power, and that's what yeah. You like you're saying the magazine was successful. Your team was doing so well. You were probably you were coming up with creative ideas. I'm sure you said throughout your was, too and stuff. I was, so you yeah. were contributing, but maybe not like the running the full show. And that yeah, this addiction is not affecting just you. Everybody in your orbit. And your moods. And that's, yeah, yeah, I I wonder, like, I'm guessing for, I'm guessing that, yeah, if you were still an editor at the, and went through all this, that you would have lost your job. There's no question about it, you know, um, but I was able to hold on to my job and, and, um, 
And I had that job for many years after get, after getting sober too, by the way, right? That's amazing. And uh, what was that then? Like, <laughs> I can't even imagine. Like, and that's, yeah, you said that the people working there, you don't even know if they had, like, yeah, you just like. Well, what, what they would have known, I'm sorry to cut you off, but th- what they absolutely would have known is that something changed. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and, and what that, how, how they explain that to themselves and to each other you know, you'd have to ask them, but, but, you know, it was essentially like a different person came, you know, walking into the office and, and, you know, let's be honest, not the next day, you know, it took time for me to, to, you know, get sober and it took time for me to start to realize like, Oh, wow. I've, you know, been behaving like a fucking animal, you know, and and treating people poorly, uh, not, not being communicative, uh, not, um, being present, not being empathetic, you know? Right. And then all, so you're you know, coming back to like life and then getting healthier, getting stronger, but then you're also realizing all of the shitty choices and shitting thing you've been putting yes. people through. So, right. Yeah. So like, you're trying to get through like, okay, I'm sober human now. And then, oh shit, I've been an ass. I've been a total dick. <laughs> and so, uh, but it wasn't even like I was coming back to life in many ways was like I was discovering life for the first time and figuring out who I was really like truly for the first time. And so I was kind of on the path to recovery and, and, you know, with that, uh, and, and just a word about that, right? Like it, that is hard. And, and that took, you know, I, I was ready you know, but like once I found myself on that path, uh, I started to realize like, okay, like this isn't, these aren't like acceptable human behaviors, you know, and, and this isn't the person that I want to be. I don't want to be this person. I want to be, you know, listen, I'm <laughs> Lord knows I'm not perfect, but like, I want to be kind. I want to have healthy relationships with, with the people around me whether we're working together or uh, family members or just some random person that I, you know, meet at a grocery store, you know. And so um, unless you're there hoarding all the toilet paper, in which case, (laughs) fuck off. But um, I think that, that, like, I started to learn who I was and I started to uh, become, like, an adult, really, at 35 for the first time and 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 so it was a really interesting time for me but surely the people around me that didn't know that I was a drug addict uh would have been like what the fuck is going on with this dude because like he's all of a sudden like you know super present and here and um yeah but that's what happened yeah do you have Sorry that we already. I'm like, do you have like 15 more minutes? Yeah, of course. Is that cool? I was, I was like, oh man, well, I didn't realize we talked so yeah, long. Yeah. I wanted to wrap it up properly and not just cut out. Um, yeah, and this also was then happening. And what probably the catalyst of you actually getting sober is you were having a baby. That's right. Right. So you're going through this, and that yeah, that was a beautiful line in your book, right? It's that you're like pushing the baby down the line and saying like welcome to this life or something like that. Do you remember what the line is? It's it's fatherhood um, changed everything for me. And, you know, I I was ready to to stop using drugs. And I think that's, 
it's important for me to say, you know, I think you need to be ready. It's not going to happen unless you're ready. And I was ready. And so, um, but it did sort of dovetail with my then wife being pregnant and, um, and, and she kind of stepped up and was like, dude, you got to get your shit together. And, uh, and that was sort of like, right, you know what I do. And because I was ready and because I had acknowledged long before I stopped taking the pills, I'd acknowledged that, uh, that I was a drug addict and that I was powerless over these things, these pills, but fatherhood changed everything. And I got sober 92 days before my oldest son was born. I have three sons. Um, before my oldest son, Oscar, was born. 92 days, three months and two days before he was born. So I got sober uh, October 12th of 2007, and he was born January 14th of 2008. And that, that moment, you know, that I had in this hospital room with him, or really in the hospital like pushing him in this like bassinet on wheels and looking down at him the day that he was born and, and just thinking like, Oh my God, like we're both new to this world, you know, and we're going to figure it out together. And, and was, was a really important moment for me because it, it was as life defining to me as that cartwheel was. You know, that cartwheel set me on a path. And then looking down at my newborn son and me being newly sober, it's almost as if, and it sounds hokey and I understand that, but that his birth was my rebirth. And that we were just sort of both opening our eyes to the world for the first time. And so um, that was this sort of path for me. And I really believe. And again, like this also sounds hokey, but, uh, uh, you know, I believe it. So I'm going to say it. I shouldn't be here today. I, I should be dead. And I know that. And I OD'd a number of times. And I write about that in the book as well. I shouldn't be here. And I was given a second chance. And, um, uh, and I'm grateful beyond measure for that second chance. But I really believe that, that I'm here to be a father to my children, and that's, that's why I'm here, you know? And so, like, to circle back to the earlier part of this conversation, and then I'll shut up, but, like, to circle back to the earlier part of this conversation where I was sort of using my career to identify myself and, like, hey, I'm the guy that interviewed this celebrity, and I'm the guy that that had this big job, you know, if you had asked me at the height of my addiction to say, hey, in like five words, like, who are you? I would have said, I'm the editor in chief of this. I'm, you know, the guy who controls this. I'm the guy that has 40 people working for him. I'm the guy, and I would have done that. You ask me that now, I would say, I'm a dad. I'm uh, a son, I'm a brother, I'm a friend, I'm a fellow within the recovery community. I wouldn't mention my career, wouldn't even fucking make it on the list. But it took me going through all of this stuff and it took fatherhood for me to understand what matters to me and who I am.
and that all of this external shit that we talked about, right? Oh, I'll be happy once I get this promotion. I'll be happy once I, you know, find myself in this relationship. I'll be happy once I get a new car or a house or that pair of shoes or whatever it is. You know, for me, and I can only speak for me and from my experience, none of that stuff matters. And it is very easy to say, oh, hey, material things don't matter. But like that shit does not matter to me today. And what matters to me is that I am a sober dad. My kids have only ever known me as a sober man. Um, and I show up. I'm present. You know, like you need me for something. I'm there. I say I'm going to be there. I'm there because I had years of saying I was going to show up and I didn't. I had years of disappointing people. And I had years of, like I said, plopping down on my couch in between performances, you know, uh, which is how I viewed my life. And so um, fatherhood has just absolutely changed everything. I'm sorry, that was just like an incredibly long-winded thing. But it's just like, I'm so fucking grateful for it that I just like need to share, you know? That is perfect. And I'm glad you shared all of it. And that is the perfect interlude to me asking one of my first questions, because you just said one of the phrases on my keychains. I ask everybody to pick out not necessarily which phrase they what they like the most, but which one they need to hear. If you can see, these are the phrases. Can you see them? I can. So you just said so fucking grateful, so fucking grateful. <laughs> which is actually one of my phrases on the keychains. You know, um, so there might be another one that you actually feel you need most in your life right now. But I was like, that's hilarious. You just said exactly one of the same right. phrases. Listen, I, I think, you know, in many ways, uh, they're kind of tied together. You know, they, like one leads to the next. Right. Yeah. For me, everything I try to be rude, have everything rooted in gratitude. OK, because yeah. if I am feeling fear or if I'm if I'm feeling not enough if I'm feeling not like I'm here in the moment now if I'm feeling like oh my god other people are judging me if I'm feeling all of these things I go to gratitude I take a second and I try to ground myself in gratitude does it take away all of life's problems no of course not you know but what it does is it keeps me in the moment it reminds me, oh, wait a minute, listen, I am, I'm healthy, I'm here, I'm sober, right? So like, let's start with those things. And then it's like, wait, my kids are healthy, you know, and like, and then it just sort of it ripples out. So yeah, like, life is going to throw shit at us nonstop. And we're now in the like, middle of this coronavirus, you know, um, pandemic. And all Which of, is affecting all of us, no matter what you have, no matter how much exactly. success you have. Hey, Tom Hanks has it, guys. Right. It's, impacting, <laughs> it's impacting everyone, and we're all having to change our lives, and we're yeah. all having fear and anxiety around that, for sure. The uncertainties, financial, health, whatever yep. it is, that are, that are kind of swirling around this. And gratitude doesn't take them away, but what, for me, gratitude does is it just reminds me of, oh, wait a minute. I have so much in my life to be grateful for. And for today, right now where I'm sitting, I have a roof over my head. I have food in my fridge. 
my kids are well, and I'll deal with tomorrow tomorrow, and tomorrow I'm going to have curveballs, and there's going to be stuff and decisions that I'm going to need to make for myself and for my family, but like right now today, like I'm good. I'm healthy. My family, thank God, is healthy, and you know, the power's on in this house, and like that's great, and I'll take that for today, and I'm sober, you know? Yeah. So yeah, a lot of gratitude. Yeah. Gratitude has definitely been my default setting in this in this stormy unknown time. And that's why I posted on my Instagram account yesterday. Like the, it was like, how how freaking lucky are we? Like, this is really fucked up. But also like, how lucky are we? Like, especially like with social media it can be a crazy thing. But people are offering. Oh, here you had a, you had like free meet. You had a virtual meeting, right? Yeah. Yeah, for last night, age. people are offering, oh, you can't go to your yoga teacher. Here's a free yoga class. Like people are offering so many resources. Your kids are out of school. Here's some lesson plans. Like everybody's connecting and sharing. And yeah, I wake up in a warm bed. I have the ability, even though my family's losing income, we have the ability to use credit cards to buy groceries. Listen, like we have so fucking much, even though we and are it's, locked it's, down. <laughs> it's, it is. And, and it's a reminder that there are so many people in this country, of course, the world uh, you know, but in this country that don't have those things yeah. and, and virus or no virus. And so to take a minute, just be grateful for what we have um, because there are lots of people out there that don't have this shit. You talk about a warm bed. I talk about food in my fridge. Let's be honest. There are a lot of people in this country that do not have those things. And so taking a minute to be grateful for what I have, is incredibly, incredibly important. It really is. Yep, absolutely. Okay. Um, something I ask everybody is, what is a go-to to raise your joy levels, like to boost your mood? Maybe if you're not excited to have something or do something, you're not feeling good. Maybe it's gratitude. <laughs> yeah, I mean, listen, I'll, I'll, I'll stop banging that drum. But yeah, like it can definitely, it can, it can absolutely like shift the energy for me. It really can. My kids are funny as shit, you know, and I have a 12 year old and eight year old twins. Uh, and like, they're pretty awesome. And I can just like end up having a dumb conversation with them about pretty much anything that can be pretty funny and can be a game changer for me. Um, I'm a big fan of snacking. I think, <laughs> I think you know, that's a first for this answer, but I love it. I love it. When, when all else fails. Like, it does. I get it though. I can like snack it out a little bit, and that 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 helps. Music <laughs> is obviously like always a game changer, you know, and and um, of any kind. Um, but uh, and and you know what I need to do more of, which I just haven't done enough of in my life, is just like exercise. You know, like it, it helps. I mean, I've been like, I mean, it really helps. And I've had people that like have been saying that my whole life. Oh, you should. And I'm an active guy, but like, I've just never really like, and I'm starting to do that more and more now I'm in my late forties. And I'm like, you know, I have a basketball hoop in the driveway and I'll be like, guys, let's go outside and let's play some basketball. Or yesterday I was playing soccer with one of my sons and like, I felt great. You know, I felt a hundred years old, but I felt great afterwards. Yeah. So that. Yeah. Here's another with the should hack. So if you take it out of some, again, like, oh, I should exercise. Even I need to exercise doesn't feel good. So like sometimes should shows up and it's something you actually like 
got to do so like yeah. I, gotta, I should do my dishes like so why would I want to do this so asking yourself like how would I feel if I did this why would I want to and then seeing like if you coming from oh I want to exercise because I want to feel more alive I want to feel clear-headed can also cut procrastination that's another should taking the shit out hack and 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 that is procrastination <laughs> is a big one for me so thank you for that yeah. <laughs> but just changing the language again wait i don't need to exercise i actually want to do i want to yeah i do why do i want to <laughs> yeah no we all need that um okay i ask everybody to apply this phrase to their own life what is easiest for you is not always what is best for you which is like duh but yet we often fall what's easiest so can you think of a way to apply that to your own life what is easiest for me is to do blank what is best for me is to do what is easiest for me is to expect that the things that need to happen are actually just going to happen on their own and um what is best for me is to get off my ass and do those things there you go <laughs> all right the final question is we've we've brought up many times why the or tied into why the podcast is called claim it what are you claiming for yourself right now <sighs> wow um I'm going to link it to my last answer, which is like, I, I'm going to claim being, um, taking action. And, uh, does that make sense? Yeah. You know, um, I think it's, I, I need to, I need to like own my life, <clears throat> do my shit. I need to keep moving forward. Let's edit those with going back. You didn't say should, but you said need change it to want. Sorry. Yeah. Right. Go back. And, <laughs> I'm just, I'm just being supportive. No, go back and like dub over it actually, if you can, you know, anytime. <laughs> but you I need say to it, say it to feel the change in the shift. I, 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 I want You to, could even change out want to I am. I'm going to keep am. moving forward. I'm going to take go. action. I'm going to do what's in front of me. I'm going to claim that, uh, you know, I am going to, for the next day anyway, you know, and I'll, cause I live a day at a time. So I'll reclaim it tomorrow morning, but I'm going to claim that and I'm going to get done what needs to get done. Perfect. And that's the truth. It is a day to day. It's a minute to minute guys. It's like we, Oh, we got my shit together. I'm self-aware. Yeah. Next minute you're back and <laughs> seeking validation and whatever you have to like, it's an internal, the claiming process work. is a minute work. to minute job. Right. <laughs> Never ending. Thank you so, so, so much oh for God, spending you. your time with me and having this conversation and opening so much. I will definitely be linking to you. You guys read his book. Um, lots of amazing. We didn't even get into like, yeah, he's lived a pretty exciting life while he was taking all these painkillers. So there's some interesting <laughs> stories in there. <laughs> yeah, it's been a pretty interesting ride. Yeah, thank you again so, so much. And um, best of luck in this current state of the world and moving forward. Same we got gratitude. You. Stay safe and healthy. <laughs> all right. <laughs> I really hope you guys enjoyed that conversation. I so loved it. Again, highly recommend getting his book, As Needed for Pain. It'll be linked in the show notes. Full show notes and links are at yourjoyologist.com slash podcast, and you'll find all the episodes there. You can find Dan at Dan underscore Perez, P-E-R-E-S. On social media, I'm at Your Joyologist, of course. 
We would love to hear from you. Share the episode. Let us know what you think. Please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. I love knowing why you're listening, where you came from, what you think. And your reviews mean something to me, but it also means something in the world of podcast and getting it out to more listeners. So that will hopefully have more people in the world looking within, claiming their lives, getting out of their own way. If you do leave a review, screenshot it, send it to me at podcast at yourdwildgist.com. And I'll send you a little gift for my product line because just like I have everybody pick a keychain, Dan Pope picked so fucking grateful. There's so many other phrases. I have things for all the people from I am enough to so fucking grateful. So all sorts of things to empower you, inspire you, support you in your life and owning who you are. Also a digital app, Own Your Awesome. It's a daily inspiration app full of thoughts and affirmations to get you through the day to day. Again, I'm so honored that you're here listening to me. I love hearing from you. Send me a DM. Tell me what you think. All of it. And um, when we recorded this episode, we were going through lockdown from the COVID virus. So whether you're listening to this now or months from now or a year from now, take a moment and think of all you are grateful for, even though you might be losing a lot feeling a lot right now. We have so, so, so much. We really do. All right. See you on the interwebs. I'm at your joyologist.